You're listening to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. All right, everybody, welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Lee Johnson. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Rick Lee and Charles Peterson. Hey, guys, how are y'all doing today? Hey, Lee, how are you? Feeling good. Feeling great. All right. Well, before we get started, like usual, I want to get your drink orders and your rants and raves for this week. So, Rick, what is your drink order and what are you ranting and raving about this week? Well, I I was going to go for a Negroni, but it's a little too early in the day. And so I'm going to order what in Italy they call either an Americano or a Sbagliato, which means a mistake. (laughs) Which is a Negroni, except instead of gin, you put in Prosecco. My rant today is Henry fucking Kissinger. Good rant. Good rant. I started listening to this podcast, which is really good, called Nixon at War. And we all know what a fucking rat bastard Nixon was. <laughs> but I feel like Henry Kissinger kind of gets a pass. But that dude was evil. Evil it's, for no reason. Yeah, just cruel. I mean, Nixon was clearly, I, I don't know the technical word, but like a sociopath or a psychopath. <laughs> but Kissinger, I feel like he gets a pass. And I, so I'm ranting about Henry stupid Kissinger. My rave is the... TV show from the late 60s and it ended in 75, Mannix, starring Mike Connor and Gail Fisher. Well, that's um, right. I love that show. I, I, I remember that show because I'm, oh, yeah. I'm a man of a certain age. Charles, I remember it too, and I thought that dude was the coolest guy ever. Coolest, coolest. As, as fuck, he was so cool. Yeah. Because Mannix was spelled with an X. It was M-A-N-N-I-X. And you're like, oh, that's special. Yeah. (laughs) Mannix. Is this streaming somewhere? Can I check this out? Everything's available somewhere, Lee. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right, Charles, what about you? What are you drinking? What are you ranting and raving about this week? I'm drinking a Moscow Mule because I love freshly made ginger beer. It's a Tito's Moscow Mule. And I got the copper cup. <laughs> nice. I'm holding it so deeply and it's making my fingers a little cold. So I'm enjoying that experience as well. My rant is maybe for something that doesn't exist. And my rant is that it should exist. There should be someone whose job it is when people die to speak the bitter truth about their existence. Like Henry Kissinger? Like Henry Kissinger, like Donald Rumsfeld. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Like Donald Rumsfeld, if we're going to talk about rat bag war criminal bastards in American history. And the fact that we don't have someone whose job is to say, you know what? I get it that someone is sad that this rotting hulk of meat is passing away. But my job is to say that this asshole started a war in Iraq. This asshole cavalierly lied to the American public. This asshole made illegal gains on his position in government. And this is how we should think about him. No one does that, right? There's this faux sacrosanctness that's sort of imposed upon the dead just because they're dead. I'm like, no, no. This is when you tell the truth about them, right? This is where you really inscribe the final honest words about this person's existence. So I'm angry that we don't have this as a culture, and I'm going to name it. We're going to call it the funereal truth speaker. <laughs> There'll be one person who stands up in whatever hall in which you are being funeralized, and then at the end of it all, they will have a large stick, they'll stamp the floor three times, and they'll say... <laughs> And this is how they will initiate. They'll say, hear ye, hear ye. No, no, they'll, no, they'll start off this motherfucker right here. <laughs> 
and then go into it. So that's my rant. My rave is Lake Michigan. I'm home for a little bit, visiting my family. Glad to see that. And I was born on the southern tip of Lake Michigan and the beaches and the sand and the gorgeousness of it. And I just realized that growing up here in the 70s and 80s was as idyllic as growing up in an industrialized Midwestern town can be. Nice. So Lake Michigan, thank you. Lee, what are you drinking and ranting and raving about? I am drinking a sangria. It's summertime and it's not a drink that I would normally order because most bars don't have it, but we're sitting at a hotel bar in the summertime. I see that they have a frosty pitcher of sangrias over there, so I'm going to have one of those. White or red? I like the whiter ones. Yeah, me too. I like the white sangrias. Those are amazing. Yes. I'm also going to have an extra shot of insulin because I'm going to be having a sangria. Is there someone we should call? Can you, could you write a number out for us before? <laughs> I don't know if Frangelica can, can uh, hook you up with a shot of insulin. <laughs> I have it with me, trust me, all the time. So this week I am ranting about automatic transmissions. I have to be honest, I don't drive a lot anymore. I mean, I haven't driven a lot in the last year because of COVID, but also... You know, I haven't gotten my brand new bionic eyes yet. Driving has become more and more unpleasant. But the other day, I was out just driving around. It was beautiful. And I was like, I wish I had a stick shift. They're so much more fun to drive. It wasn't until just recently, probably like maybe my last two cars that were automatic transmissions, but I always had a stick shift. I just love them. I miss having one, especially in weather like it is right now. My rave this week is minor league baseball. (laughs) I have to tell you. So my partner and I went to the baseball game. Our local team is called the Memphis Redbirds. They're a triple-A team in the St. Louis Cardinals franchise. Uh, But we went. I don't care. They're not the Cardinals. They're the Memphis Redbirds. (laughs) But we went for the July 4th game. Because we would get the fireworks and a AAA ball game. We had great seats about 10 rows back behind home plate. And there's so many great things about AAA ball. The stadium is amazing. There's a kind of corniness to it that they embrace. You know, they play these stupid games in between innings. And I had forgotten how much fun AAA ball games are. It doesn't even matter if you like baseball. As a matter of fact, they're better if you don't like baseball. Uh, but I just want to encourage you, if you have a AAA team in your city, definitely go see a game. Okay, so today, Charles is back in the hot seat. Ooh. We, and so, <laughs> how is it? Ooh. So, Char- Charles, tell us what we're going to be talking about today. We are going to be talking about a little something I like to call vulgarity. So, <laughs> a few weeks ago, I ordered a shirt through Etsy. Etsy, here is, here is sponsorship, Etsy. I ordered a shirt through Etsy, and I'm a big fan of the film Goodfellas. And I don't know if you know the scene where Joe Pesci is confronting a guy in Henry Hill's bar and he's insulting him about as a child, he shines shoes for a living, which is a very respectable, a very respectable job. No need to insult people who shine shoes. It's great work. And the culminating line, which signifies that this character is going to die at the hands of Joe Pesci. Spoiler alert. Sorry. If you haven't seen Goodfellas, it's been almost 40 fucking years. Not my fault. How have you not seen Goodfellas? How have you seen? (laughs) But the guy says, now go home and get your fucking shine box. That's the shirt I have. I put the shirt on. It's a great shirt. It's got the character with the pinky ring. My wife looks at it with a little bit of disdain. And she doesn't say it, but I can see it in her eyes. She's like... Are you really going to wear that? 
in public. <laughs> I, Charles, I think the subtext there was when I'm with you. Right. Oh, certainly when I'm with you. <laughs> or are you going to wear that around your parents? So this got me thinking about what are acceptable forms of expression, terms, ideas within particular context. And this makes me think about what is vulgar? What do we think about as vulgar? Why do we think about it as vulgar? Does vulgarity have any place in society? I am a vulgar person <laughs> in many ways. In some ways, I'm not, though. I do have my limits. But I, I think of myself in the same way from the great stage play and film Amadeus, where uh, Mozart confronts the Austrian emperor, and he says to him, Your Majesty, I may be a vulgar man, but I assure you, my music is not. I've always carried that with me in terms of, yeah, I'm a vulgar person, but what are the limits to that? What does that mean? So here we go. Let's talk about some vulgarity for fuck's sake. I'm super excited to talk about this. In advance of recording this today, I actually looked it up because I was wondering what the difference between obscenity and vulgarity was. And so it turns out that when you're talking about obscenity, profanity, and vulgarity, the distinction between them is really who you're offending. So if you're being obscene, you can get in trouble with the law. Right. That's a legal definition. If you're being profane, you're offending religious people, right. right? And if you're being vulgar, in a sense, you're offending the upper class. Because vulgar comes from the Latin that means common people. You're saying something that a more sophisticated term or phrasing could have been used. So it seems like your shirt is obscene because it has the word fuck in it, right? <laughs> uh, but weirdly, because it's a film quote... It seems like it's not vulgar because it exhibits a kind of cultural sophistication. But if we're talking about what offends whom as part of defining vulgar, the utterance of fuck or fucking, right, mm -hmm. on this shirt that's being worn in the public square, would that not be seen as vulgar by those who find that to be inappropriate? Because we're definitely going to feed into and think about what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. So it can be seen, because of the use of the word fucking, that the display of it in public for those who may not want to be exposed to that language would make it vulgar. But that's what I'm trying to say is I think only people who don't get the reference would find the shirt both obscene and vulgar. People who get the reference would find the shirt obscene, but not vulgar. <laughs> I can't believe we're having this discussion about your T-shirt. <laughs> is, isn't there a sense in which I could say, I get the reference, I smell what you're stepping in. <laughs> That's vulgar. That's, that's common. That's just common, Rick. <laughs> I, I just wish you didn't wear it in public. And, and so could it be vulgar just because if the public space is a space where we ought not on purpose offend someone who doesn't deserve to be offended, then wouldn't I be claiming Charles' shirt is vulgar because you shouldn't wear that in public? See, now, I think that's an interesting question because I think with vulgarity, we tend to default to the person with the strictest understanding of vulgarity. So, for example, if we're talking about should this shirt be worn in public, I think you might say it would be vulgar to wear it in public, but it's because you would be defaulting to the disposition, the sensibilities of people who don't know the film, who don't get the joke, right? But it's not that you suddenly find it vulgar. I was trying to think before this conversation, when do I ever use the term vulgar? And the one example that I could think of is that I sometimes describe 
certain accounts of philosophical positions as vulgar. Like, you know, people say that's a vulgar Marxism. Right, 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 um, right, right, right. But I wouldn't use that term in a group in which not everybody understands Marx or is expected to understand right. the difference between a more sophisticated reading of Marx and a vulgar reading of Marx. So, yeah, it's weird. I, I, I don't use the term either, really, except I think vulgar materialism, vulgar Marxism, vulgar realism where I think it simply means unsophisticated. And, you know, come on, people, Nietzsche wrote the book how many years ago that we know that all of our values about aesthetics come from the <laughs> upper class. Right. And we ought not to be still calling working class people vulgar or proclaiming something's vulgar because it belongs to the working class. So I, I think when we say vulgar Marxism, what we're saying is this is unsophisticated, like a thoughtful person like me would never have that kind of Marxism. But can I just go back to my point for a second? Like, so, you know, let's say we're all out together as we might be in a week and <laughs> we're walking down the street and Charles is wearing his shirt. And then all of a sudden I hear a little child say, Mommy, what does Fook mean? And, she, and yeah. like, what is she supposed yeah. to say? Like, no, dear, it's fuck. Fuck. Could you say it with me? Fuck. Um, so, like, now Charles has caused that parent to have a lesson right there on the street. And is that not vulgar? We have a word for that, though. It's obscene, right? It's like you have an obscenity on your shirt. And obscenity is a direct reference to the prevailing norms of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable which is different than the norms of a sophisticated class. Here's the thing. So I'm understanding what you're saying, Lee, that obscene disrupts prevailing norms, whereas vulgar can be seen as the articulation of a particular limited way of understanding something. It can be common. It can be simplistic. So basically what you're saying is that vulgar can be a synonym for these other ways of discussing uh, a person or a community's apprehension of a particular topic. So if we go with that, which I'm not completely convinced that I'm going with that, but if we go with that, could we begin to think of the vulgar as being a legitimate articulation unto itself? Not necessarily a diminishment or a limited articulation, but it is a way of articulating and understanding something that is not necessarily in opposition, but certainly is differentiated from, as Rick has brought us to discussing Nietzsche's views on aesthetics, an articulation created by the dominant class or the upper class. <laughs> I think we can agree that we all have learned a certain kind of, for lack of a better term, dialect. Let's call it like middle academies. Um, <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> please, please trademark that, copyright that as soon as... Because that's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> it's only asshole-ish. <laughs> Most you be so vulgarly. <laughs> so I think like my, not so much my immediate family, but like my cousins, they constantly tell me I have an accent. And you all would say, yeah, because you do have an accent, but they mean something different than when you say. You say you have a Chicago accent that is unmistakable. But, <laughs> but they're telling me, I have, I think maybe what they mean is an affectation. 
We all, I think, do it to a large extent. We flatten out our accents as much as is comfortable. But I think we also flatten out our vocabularies. I mean, clearly when we're teaching, I'm vulgar a lot. But I'm not walking in the classroom like, what the fuck's up, dude? You know, you know I, I'm not vulgar in the classroom. But then I start thinking, I use it then strategically in a couple of ways. One is to insist on a certain kind of lineage from which I come. So the two of you have known me now long enough to know, like, I have a class chip on my shoulder and, and it just doesn't go away. And I, like, I, I smell classism immediately. And once I start smelling someone being all classist and snooty, I'm like, fucking back off right now. Just fucking step off. And, and so that's one strategic way I deploy it. And then the other way is for humor. Like, because I speak middle academies a lot of the time, to drop a shit there or an ass or, a, no, don't drop a, a literal shit. But, <laughs> but, you know, to drop in vulgarity, I do it often for humor. It's cheap. It's really cheap. But, you know, sometimes you need the laughs. I think you're getting to something really interesting here because... I think that using or not using obscenities is a way of signaling that you're keyed in to the dominant norms of your society, that you're keyed in to what everyone is supposed to find acceptable or unacceptable. Vulgarity is a way of distinguishing you as a part of a certain class or alternatively of thumbing your nose at a certain class of people. So a, a narrower sense of where I belong and where I don't belong or whose sensitivities are co consonant with mine and whose aren't. No, it's definitely an identity. I think you make a great point. I was thinking that as Rick was describing the chip on his shoulder, which I will now be much more aware of. But it sounds like Rick is talking about it as a performed identity as well, mm -hmm. right? And a performed identity, because I've, I've done the same thing. I actually have a caveat in my classroom at the beginning of every semester, I tell my students, look, I curse a lot. I use vulgar language. If you find it offensive, please let me know and I will dial it down. I will be much more conscientious about that. In 21 years of teaching, I've had exactly one student say to me, I don't like that type of talk. But I wonder, am I simply doing it because that's who I am, because certain topics or certain points I wanna make spur me to use that language in order to best demonstrate what I mean? Or is it also a certain level of awareness that I'm a working class black man teaching in elite white institutions? And am I doing this in order to sort of underline my sense of telling you who I really am? So that you as the student, you as one of my colleagues, you as an administrator will never be confused in terms of knowing how I see myself in relation to my origins or my background. So am I performing a certain type of authenticity by engaging in the Vulgate use of language? And does that also have the problem of reinforcing certain types of stereotypes about black men that these populations may have because they have very little to no contact on a regular basis with black men? And also, most black men would not have the privilege of exercising. I mean, it's interesting that you say I use vulgar language in the classroom as a kind of signaling of authenticity. When, in fact, the only reason you can do that is because you've got tenure, right? And so, you know, it's sort of like, look here, I'm really a common man, 
But of course, you have to have a certain middle upper class privilege to even be able to flaunt that authenticity in this particular way. I was recently at an event that included a lot of my extended family, many of whom I haven't seen in years. And on my dad's side of the family, except for me and my father, all of the men are union pipe fitters. My great-great-grandfather was one of the original members of the Pipe Fitters Union in Chicago. Oh. Oh, wow. My dad used to say he founded the union, and then I did a little bit of research, and I'm like, hmm. No, that seems not to be true. But then I also wanted to honor the fact that my dad was proud that he mm-hmm. founded the Pipe Fitters so, Union. So you called bullshit on your dad? I, I called bullshit, <laughs> but then but then I realized I realized it was bullshit to call bullshit on my dad. <laughs> it's not a hill you want to die on. No, no, and no. and I saw the pride. It, it came out of a place of pride for him, right? But anyhow. One of my aunts said to me, I could tell a longer story about her, but for those of you who are interested, read the introduction to The Thought of Matter, available on Amazon.com. She's like... Amazon, hit us up for a sponsorship. (laughs) (laughs) Also... We're gonna. We want to put Rick on that space flight. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Rick, Rick wants to ha- hang out with Jeff Bezos. Look, I have zero interest in going to space. Anyhow, Same. because I also think there's probably a lot of vomiting involved. <laughs> but my aunt, she's like, I don't know if I even know how to talk to you. And I'm like, Peggy, why? And she's like, Well, you know, you're a professor and all. And she's actually in my book, and I talk about her at a different event, introducing me as a professor of philosophy and the pride she had in that. But in those moments, I'm like, okay, what can I do to signal that I'm not just a professor of philosophy and that I can hang with you and I can talk with you? And like, I'm not going to be cussing with my Aunt Peggy, but I'll, I'll slip out of my middle academies into more of the Chicago dialect that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating for me because I experience very similar dynamics with my family. I'm first generation, college, and certainly the first person in my family get a PhD of any sort, regardless of philosophy. And I remember, I think around the time I was working my master's degree, my, my Aunt Bernice pulling me aside and saying, hey, it's such a really amazing thing that here you are, your grandparents never had more than a fourth grade education. And my paternal, and this is my paternal aunt, my paternal grandparents came out of Northern Louisiana in the 20s, sharecroppers, and then my grandfather made it to Gary and he became a steel worker for 30 years, part of the union. But she said, it's an amazing thing that your grandparents who never had more than fourth grade education, here you are, they have grandchildren who are pursuing master's in philosophy. So that same dynamic is there. But here's what makes it interesting is that if we fall back into embracing our working class roots, signaling that that's who you are, the funny thing is it's a result of the fact that we do have family who have imposed upon us to some degree to not be vulgar, mm-hmm. right? So the working class aspiration yeah. that drives us to these peaks and motivates us. Like, if my parents heard the way I speak on this podcast, or like any of my aunts and uncles, it would just be a problem, right? Mm-hmm. But it is the the aspirational class desires of our communities, which have driven us to the point of privilege from which we now feel like we have to signal that we are not. Mm. We are not what they wanted us to be. Yeah, I think that one of the things that the three of us all share in common is that we're all from working class families and we all have a class chip on our shoulder. But you're bringing up something really interesting, Charles, that I do want to talk about, which is to ask, what do we, the three of us, 
find vulgar. I want to get at that question, though, first by telling you one of my all-time favorite jokes. So there's this joke about a king sitting at his banquet table and enjoying this big lavish meal and a, like, I don't know, who runs and tells kings things? Knaves? <laughs> I don't know. Like, right. So a, a knave, a knave, a knave, like, runs in the room and he says, your majesty, your majesty, the people are revolting. The people are revolting. And so the king slowly gets up and walks over to the window and looks down at the town square and he says, the people aren't revolting. They're disgusting. (laughs) And so I think that there's an indication of a kind of recognition of the vulgar in that sense. That is, I think, technically what vulgarity means, the common. But even us, right? I mean, Charles said, and I think this is exactly right in my family as well, that I was raised not to be vulgar, not to be common. And so there are things that I find vulgar. I I probably wouldn't use that word, But one example is that a couple of weeks ago, I was watching Hulu and this commercial came on and it was for erectile dysfunction pill. There's a lot of commercials for those. And the tagline at the end of the commercial was get hard or get your money back. Oh. And I literally turned to my partner and I was like, can they say that on TV? Like, that seems, and I didn't use the word vulgar. I probably said obscene or something. But it seems like, uh, that shouldn't be on TV. Anybody could see this commercial. I feel like that should be the motto of a sex worker. <laughs> <laughs> That's my guarantee. <laughs> so I have a similar thing with the use of the word Johnson in place of penis or dick or something else. I actually find Johnson much more vulgar than any other word for male genitalia. Sorry, Lee. (laughs) What about you, Charles? What do you find vulgar? Scatological. Anything scatological. I just, I'm not one for poop jokes or shit jokes or I got to take a dump. I don't want to hear that. And I don't Mm. know if this is just my natural revulsion toward fecal. I, I can't. I just, so that's what I find vulgar. Yeah, I feel the same way about the whole genre of like jackass movies. Yes. Like it's not funny to me, but it's also not obscene to me. It's vulgar. It is vulgar, yeah. Listeners, we're virtually toasting you here at the hotel bar. But since we can't put our next drink on your tab, we figure the least you can do is follow this podcast on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. Charles is at CF Peterson. That's at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is spelled with an O. Rick is at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor is abbreviated DR and Lee is spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now on the off chance that you weren't just furiously scribbling notes while I said that, you can visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know about how to follow and listen to us there. Now, back to our conversation. So, but I, I do want to get back to the idea that if, if we place vulgar within a certain type of consciousness in relationship to power, 
I do want us to think about the possibilities of the vulgar, the obscene, disrupting a certain expected normative discourse. And I want to think about the vulgar as being very important in a way that challenges and calls into question and exposes the problems of the abuse of power or hegemonic behavior. Going back to what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, I'm, I'm wondering how much of that critical, let's say, deployment of vulgarity is only possible in the hands of people who have a certain kind of privilege. So that, you know, I could strategically employ vulgarity because I have tenure or because I'm a white dude. So I'm wondering if for the people for whom vulgarity was originally labeled, whether they have access to that same kind of deployment or to put it in maybe a different way, whether without the privilege, it's read straightforwardly as, well, that's just vulgar. Well, sure. It's certainly read that way from the perspective of the elites or those in charge or those empowered. But from the perspective of the people, it is a language, it is a way to challenge, it is a way to articulate or construct a very different worldview and one that's critical, I think, of the dominant force. So I think about, if we're going to think about Vulgate as attached to class perspectives or a lack of sophistication, I mean, think about certain forms of Elizabethan theater, certain forms of medieval Italian theater, commedia dell'arte. Right? That was not the, the theater, that was not the aspirational aesthetics of the dominant classes. This was of the people. And so you had practices and you had activities in the performance of these plays and this entertainment, which engaged in certain types of disruptive language usage or the display of certain types of bodily practices. Yeah, and, and Aristotle in the Poetics, he gives two, both of which equally bogus etymologies for the word <laughs> comedy. One of them, he says, is from the Doric dialect in which the root of the word means villages. And so basically he's hooking up comedy with country bumpkins, i.e. Right. the people. And the other etymology he gives is it comes from the huge phalluses that they would carry in front of the parades during the comedy festivals. Right. So now he's hooking that up with a certain kind of obscenity. And all of this, he's tying around the yoke of the lower classes because for him, obviously, tragedy is superior. And so there is this moment in which all of that just becomes common, I guess, for maybe that's a nice translation of vulgar is common. It's amazing to me how the elites fetishize the tragic as if the lives of the common people are not tragic enough. It's also interesting as if the lives of the elites are not comic. I mean, there's something quite hilarious about vulgarity, like oh. in the sense of just commonness, which is why if like your doctor came in and said, you know, like, how's your butt doing? Or, like, you, know, or you know, or whatever, you know, uh, like, how are those tits feeling? You know, I mean, it would be hilarious, right? Because, because it's, he's using a common term where we would expect a more sophisticated, in this case, expert term to be used. So, yeah, I do think that there's something about vulgarity that is as funny as it is offensive. Yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe it's only offensive if you're looking at it from the point of view of the sophisticated class. It's only offensive if you're trying to maintain and impose a certain type of control, a discursive control over a society. And then you have this language, you have these practices, you have this point of view which is completely disruptive and disrespectful and consciously so. 
in order to make an articulation about what I think about this particular object. So your doctor coming in and say, hey, what about those tits? That's funny because, right, <laughs> this is not the word I expect from the trained professional, but the, the word tits itself within his context has some sort of meaning and has uh, uh, carries a sense of how this doctor wants to get you to think about this part of the female anatomy. Can I just say, I had exactly this experience because... Just want to ask you about your tits? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> If I had a nickel, Charles, for every time. So I had a Fulbright and I lived in Poland for two years. And Polish is not my first or even second language. I never studied it. I just picked it up. And I was having problems that I thought were heart-related. So I went to the doctor and... Um, it, he, I don't know where this is going. He but. very quickly honed oh in God. on the fact that... This was not heart-related. This was probably digestive-related. And he was thinking, maybe I had an ulcer. And I can't even remember the word he used, but he basically asked me if my stool was dark. And I never heard that word before. Stool. And I'm like, I, I'm like, my what now? Does he say it in English or Polish? He, no, in Polish. This is all oh. going on in Polish. Okay. And he's like, is your stool dark? And I, I said, because this is how you have to speak in Polish, Mr. Doctor, or actually more like Sir Doctor, I'm afraid I don't understand that word. And then he used, what would be the translation? Poopy. He's like, is your poopy dark? <laughs> and so I didn't think anything of it because it was the only word for sh- it was the only word for shit I knew at the time. And so I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> shout out to Rick and Morty. <laughs> I'm like, no, my poop. <laughs> That's Mr. Hankey. So I, I was out later and I was talking to some friends about this because they were wondering what was wrong. And I said, oh, he thought it was an ulcer, but it turns out my poopy's not dark. And they all burst out <laughs> laughing. And they're like, did the doctors, th- these are native Polish speakers. And they're like, did the doctor say that? I said, yeah. And, and they're all laughing. And they said, because I would have expected him to use, and I wish I could think of it right now. And I'm like, oh, he did use that word, but I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> Once every episode, as a public service to hotel bar sessions, regular listeners, your HBS hosts offer a quick fire segment of random facts that you can use to spice up your future cocktail party conversations. A random fact. In the rule of St. Benedict, he indicates that a monk should drink no more than half a bottle of wine a day. Today's random fact is watermelon-smashing comedian Gallagher and Nobel Prize-winning writer Toni Morrison are both from Lorain, Ohio. Here's a random fact. There's only one letter that doesn't appear in any U.S. state name, and that's Q. You can find Z in Arizona, J in New Jersey, and even two X's in New Mexico and Texas. No Q's. Stay tuned for my next drop. So we all know this common slang term, basic, like where you call you say someone's being basic. 
And there is a sense in which it's almost analogous to saying someone's being common or someone's being vulgar, but not entirely analogous. And I think it's important to also say that this term sort of rose out of black women's culture to call someone basic. And so so not it didn't rise out of a position of power, like structurally speaking, in society. So I wonder if, just getting back to what Charles was talking about before, if we can think of ways in which inside of a group that is not the structurally dominant group, that there still may be senses of what is vulgar and what is not. What is basic? Yeah, I mean, the whole discourse around the politics of respectability, and this goes back to certainly the late 19th century and the rise of this new elite post-slavery, post-Civil War African-American elite, who were very much concerned with the ways white America perceived and embraced or did not embrace African-Americans moving into the mainstream. And a lot of that concern was around the behavior of the working classes based in the South and the various cultures, practices, traditions, beliefs that had accrued within the context of American chattel slavery. So this politics of respectability really connects to what you're saying because there becomes an internal self-policing of what habits or what behaviors or what mores, if practiced or displayed by black people, become unacceptable to the white mainstream and its perception. And it, what's also fragile here is the sense of, or the acceptance or the investment in an idea of black humanity. So all of these vulgar, common, basic behaviors further underscore the lack of faith that the mainstream white Americans have in the possibilities of black civility, black civilization, black social achievement. So there is a policing, there is an internal idea of, well, you know, we don't do that and we don't do that for X, Y, and Z reasons. My own personal family, I mean, I speak like a sailor, but growing up, you know, my parents, my uncles, my aunts, certainly on my father's side, they didn't curse. Now, I think a lot of that is because my family was very religious. But at the same time, I think it was also about we're trying to socially evolve and move beyond this particular class position. That makes me think, Charles, I just recently heard an interview on Fresh Air with, I think his first name is John, the band leader for The Late Show, John Batiste. Yeah. And I've heard a similar thing. Wow, I'm horrible on first names. Uh, jazz trombonist Shepard Archie, I think could be Alan. Anyhow, they've both said similar things. Terry Gross had him play two arrangements of the national anthem that he's done in the past. One he did when the NBA reopened, uh, and she had him go through like almost bar by bar. And to hear him start unpacking various rhythmic choices he makes, various melodic choices he made. Hearing you just talk, Charles, I, I, I think the fact of the matter is that the dominant culture has talked an awful lot about arts that emerge from either Africa or the culture of enslaved peoples. That has been labeled as vulgar. And so then in order to come into cultural awareness of the dominant culture, all of these artistic forms, poetry and music, I think being two of the most extreme, had to in many ways give up that perceived vulgarity and start, as it were, speaking artistically in a different language. And what John Batiste did in this interview was really re-elevate these traditional 
these vernaculars, that's probably a better way to put it, you know, so they're not vulgar, but elevating these vernaculars to a kind of cultural appreciation in the face of the dominant culture. And it really did open my eyes to the ways in which, without even recognizing it, we use all sorts of what seem to be maybe neutral judgments, vulgar, and so on, as exclusionary gestures. And that the redeployment of them, boy, talk about a word that's at home in middle academies. <laughs> redeployment <laughs> is one of them. Problematizing them. My folk have never used the word redeployment ever. Not, no. a, not a single no. person in the history of my family. I love the fact that you use the term my folk, F-O-L-K. I get this from y'all. <laughs> but anyhow, to, to follow up on what you were saying, Charles, there is this way in which rather than force an aesthetics of, now we're talking, an aesthetics of respectability, the move Batiste was making was the opposite, namely educate the aesthetic doorkeepers to really recognize the very values that they themselves have. Sure. I think that's such an interesting point. And it occurs to me that there is a lot of artistry to the vulgar. I mean, the vulgar is often a way to artistically refer to the obscene, mm. right? right? Without just saying mm. it, right? And so it reminds me a lot of the early blues pop songs that were almost always about infidelity or whatever. You know, I'm just thinking about you know, the song. All of these songs, you know, we might call them vulgar because we, we understand what they're referring to, what stories they're telling, but they're so artistic in being vulgar and not obscene. Well, I think there's something to be said about those who are able to craft and consciously craft the Vulgate in such a way where it displays this, I hate the term sophisticated because it has such a class sort of connection, but the complexity of these forms and the communities and the cultures from which these forms derive. So my favorite comedian of all time is Richard Pryor. And Richard Pryor falls into the profane, he falls into the vulgar in terms of the language he uses, and also often in many cases, the topics which he discussed right, in his stand-up. And I love him because there's an education, because he's able to, through his craft and his appreciation for what we're now calling the vulgar or the vernacular, he's able to show and reveal amazing levels of humanity, insight, complexity within what were formerly seen as basic or primitive forms of expression and existence. His discussion of sexuality, his discussion of the problematics of, of race relations, all of these things, he shows you that within this expression, there's a universal possibility and that these people that are seen as basic or primitive actually have a voice which has insight and has power and is in, in opposition to the attempt on the part of white American looking for uh, sort of normativity, sure. which, which pushes back against that with his own levels of engagement and sophistication, hate the word, and complexity. It's interesting to me to look at like the exact contrary example. So I should have said this, Lee, immediately when you asked, what do I find vulgar? I, I find Donald Trump's taste to be incredibly vulgar. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And in a sense that I guess now it's not my common language, but it's basic. It, it is a weird kind of imagined 
well, what my family would call fanciness. Like, that's right. fancy. And it's gaudy, and I think it's incredibly vulgar in, in that sense of basic. There's also some things, though, that are unsophisticated, like the fact that he eats ketchup with his steaks, right? right. Like, which I think, you know, is a common sense of vulgar. But then I'm assuming you're referring to like the gold lame and the, right, right. But know, that's also like that. unsophisticated. Like, just gold yeah. it up, yeah, yeah. and then it'll be fancy. <laughs> He's, well, there's yeah. a great line about him. He is a poor man's idea of what a rich man looks like. Huh, yeah. It, well, that's also been applied in a certain way to Newt Gingrich. Uh, someone said, Newt Gingrich is a dumb person's idea of a smart person. <laughs> hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email the audio clip keep it under two minutes, please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. You know, we've been talking about the vernacular. We've been talking about vulgarism, vulgarity among sort of working class peoples and the various sensibilities. But I want to talk about what does the vulgarity of the elite look like? What does the vulgarity of the empowered look like? What is a vulgar display on the part of someone who is a master or mistress of the universe? I mean, I think it's hard because there are two white elites in this country. There's the right white and the left white right. elite. And I think to the right white elite, it's vulgar, for example, to talk about race, religion, or politics at the dinner table. <laughs> I think for the left, vulgarity is very much tied up with education, no, no, I, I, lack of education. I, no, I don't mean what they think is vulgar. I think I'm, I'm trying to say, what is it that they do that we find vulgar, those of us who are not within that class? What are the vulgarities on display from those groups? I mean, I might be getting too ticky-tack here, but I'm not sure that vulgarity is the word that I would use because it seems to me that it doesn't, like, I, I, I can't reckon calling the behavior of the empowered class vulgar from the perspective of the common person. So, so let's go back and let's take- Like, I can find it, there's lots of other synonyms for offensive or dislikable or whatever, but vulgar is not the word I would use. So if we look at vulgar outside of the class dynamic, but if we look at vulgar as being something that disrupts a particular order of sensibility, yes? I don't think that's what vulgar is, though. I don't think it's about disrupting a sensibility. But, but whose definition of vulgar? So what about this as an example? I hate to use Trump, but it's the example that comes readily to mind. The way in which he more or less openly grifted during the entire presidency, like by charging the U.S. government to stay at his properties. Right. I find that vulgar. 
And right. the reason why I would call that vulgar is because we're used to a more sophisticated grift. Like, <laughs> yeah, normally, right. like, yeah. people are playing a, the, the long game, and it, it's not that open. It's not that ham-fisted. So I find that kind of thing incredibly vulgar. Okay, in that sense, okay, in that, then I do have an example to answer Charles's question. I think the perpetual whininess of wealthy, powerful white people, I find vulgar. It's like, I have to complain about my first world problems <laughs> or the, or like, or I have to sue everybody about everything, right, right. you know, like that seems like a really unsophisticated way <laughs> to deal with your life. So, so being snowflakes. Yeah. If we want to yeah. use their language against them to, for being snowflakes. Yeah, which, which would be, you know, an, an incredibly ironic accusation, right? It's like, you're so convinced of your uniqueness that it comes off as super common, right. as vulgar. Right. I, I like where Rick was going, because I think that was what I was thinking about in terms of what are the things that the rich do that disrupt a particular order that marginalized communities or working class communities have that they find vulgar? This is what I find vulgar, and I love the Ocean's Eleven's movies. I think they're great movies. Mm -hmm. But I think at the end of, I think, was it the second movie or the third movie where they go back to Vegas? And you've got these huge water springs shooting up in the middle of Las Vegas. And in order to create this faux sense of Venice for the, the casino, you've got these dams and rivers and dikes. I think the artificial disruption of the natural world by the creation and the pooling of water in the middle of the desert for entertainment and only to make money, I think that's vulgar. So basically what you're saying is this is a radical claim that Vegas is vulgar. <laughs> and meant to be vulgar. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Out of the blue. Who knew, I, I'm claiming it. The first person I, I don't think to say any, I don't think anyone has ever floated that one before. <laughs> And by the way, if the Vegas Tourism Board is out there, we're still interested in uh, <laughs> But yeah, but 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 yeah, I don't care about the money because, you know, America is all about greed. It's not a country. It's a cash grab. But the idea that water is being diverted not to provide a healthy sustenance for people or not create a space where people can bathe or use it to cook with, but just so Britney Spears could have 200-foot jets of water spring up behind her as she sings whatever song she's singing. That's vulgar. And it's vulgar because it is such an amazing abuse of power and disruption of a natural environmental order, but also a social and moral order. There are people who are literally dying for water. There are communities yeah. that are literally being acrified because of the lack of access to clean and health drinking water. And you're using it just to make sure some person at the slots throws in another $20 chip in order to not win again so you can make more money. To me, that's vulgar and vile, if we may use that yeah. term. So that's what I mean when we begin to talk about what are the displays of vulgarity on the part of the empowered, the rich, the elites, the hegemons, so forth and so on. I think Trump is a good uh, way to open up that door because he's clearly vulgar because of, he wants this sort of ostentatious display of wealth. In his mind, this is a good thing. The ability to ignore the needs of others, the, the stability of a larger community. But he's just an open door. So now I'm thinking about entire systems of vulgarity. Probably one of the most vulgar actions of the past 20 years was the illegal invasion of the state of Iraq. When you first started talking about Vegas, just to go back to my rant from today, I also find the entire Nixon administration to be incredibly vulgar. Again, not in the sense that, 
you know, there weren't other administrations who were invading countries for the purpose of colonialism and gathering natural resources and so on. But it was the excessive and ostentatious disregard to the extent that they didn't even have to pay mouth service to norms, morals, and standards. I find that incredibly vulgar. And look, I'm not being naive about the other adventures to speak sarcastically or ironically or both at the same time. I, I'm not naive about other adventures the United States government has undertaken throughout history, but there is a vulgarity. I think that is exactly the right word. There right. is a vulgarity about the Nixon administration, which, by the way, he didn't get us in. Johnson pursued this, but I think in a much less vulgar way. And, and that would be interesting to, for me to think about. Why do I find Johnson's pursuit of the same objective much less vulgar than Nixon and Kissinger? Well, I will say this, and I completely agree with you, but I would just say this, that every subsequent Republican administration is a Nixonian administration. Yes. The seeds buried into the Republican Party by the Nixon administration have bloomed again, whether it be with Reagan or whether it be with Bush one or Bush two or Trump, right? So yeah, but I agree. I just wanted to get that out there. That it's the party of Nixon and it always has been yeah. since 1968. All right, you buttholes, we're way off topic. <laughs> Wait, fuck Sorry, you, fuck you. We were talking about vulgarity. Yes, and very concrete demonstrations of vulgarity. I think that considering vulgarity, as Lee said early on, as a, a disruption of order, it flouts or contradicts or challenges certain types of, of normativity, but I think that that's flexible because I think we have to embrace the fact that those who are seen as inherently vulgar by their class position or their cultural background or their racial background or their sexual or gender background, they too have a perspective. They do have a sense of normative. They do have a moral and ethical code. And I think we have to take very seriously the ways in which those who have been given power, who take power, who are empowered, are violating the ways in which common people want to engage the world and expect the world to be engaged. So Fuck I, I, them. Yes. <laughs> Go home and get your fucking shine box. Go home box. and get your fucking shine box. You feel strong? You feel strong? Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> All right. So it looks like we are getting last call at the hotel bar again, guys. How did this happen? Francesca's kicking us out. She said that her manager has some concerns about our language. Yes. Oh. The language is a problem because the Shriners Convention attendees <laughs> do oh. not appreciate the oh. insults to Donald Rumsfeld. Shit. Frangelica, we're so fucking sorry. <laughs> so, Lee, save us. You're in the hot seat next time. What are we talking about? Next time, we are going to be talking about conspiracy theories. Dun, dun, dun. I'm a little bit concerned that everyone around me has gone off the deep end with conspiracy theories. So I want to talk about how did so many of these get such a hold on so many people? And of course, the number one conspiracy theory that we have to talk about is going to be QAnon. So I thought you were going to say Kennedy. <laughs> but that's part of the QAnon conspiracy. That's right. That that's right. JFK Lee, Jr. Lee, there are lie. answers to all this, but they told me not to tell you. 
<laughs> well, I'm looking forward to that, Lee. It sounds really exciting. Yeah, that'd be great. All right, you guys, I will catch you next time then. All right, get home safe, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs>